Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato Senior Fellow Tom Palmer explains why you're probably instinctively already a libertarian. Neil McCluskey talks Title IX. Randall O'Toole discusses affordable housing. Scholar Dirk Vandewal discusses Libya a year after U.S. intervention. And John Hospers, the libertarian philosopher, discusses his friendship with Ayn Rand. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Supreme Court recently rendered its Obamacare decision. The Affordable Care Act has been held for the most part to be constitutional by the Roberts Court. As has been pointed out before, it is in some sense splitting the baby. We're talking here with uh, Ilya Shapiro, a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, and Michael Tanner, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, about this decision and uh, about what its ramifications are for health care in the United States and about uh, constitutional jurisprudence going forward. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you again. So uh, starting with you, Ilya, what is your take on this ruling in as brief as you can be? Well, it was a baby-splitting decision. That is, Chief Justice Roberts, who was the pivotal vote here, as we now know, essentially did all he could to rule our way in favor of the challengers, the plaintiffs against the law, while upholding it. So we got very good rulings on the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, the uh, Spending Clause, which was unexpected, although he upheld the individual mandate under the taxing power, although, as I'll go into briefly later, I think that's a ticket good for that train only. Getting to the individual mandate specifically, what did the court find? Well, first, the court accepted the challenger's characterization of what the government was doing as regulating inactivity. That is, you're sitting about doing nothing, and all of a sudden the government tells you to engage in commerce, to buy a health insurance policy. And the court said, uh, healthcare is not unique for constitutional purposes. We're all in lots of different markets by the government's definition if, if we're all always in the healthcare market from birth. And so that would allow no limiting principle. And so it underlined the status quo ante, what was in place after the last big Commerce Clause case, the medicinal marijuana, Rach versus Gonzalez in 2005. And the outermost limits of federal power under the Commerce Clause, therefore, is the ability to regulate local economic activity when that activity has in the aggregate nationally a substantial effect on interstate commerce. However, Roberts effectively rewrote the mandate into a tax. You now have a choice, this is his words, not mine, between buying health insurance and paying this tax. And the reason why this is an acceptable tax, it's because it doesn't coerce you. It doesn't compel you to buy the insurance, ironically, perhaps, because the intent of Obamacare is to get everybody to buy health insurance. But here, if the tax was so high as to actually make a rational decision that people would buy the insurance rather than pay the smaller tax, it would then be unconstitutional. So it's upheld under that weird quixotic ruling of his. And then also, seven justices agreed that the Medicaid expansion and transformation was unconstitutional. That is, the uh, federal government cannot require states to expand their Medicaid programs, transform their health care bureaucracies on pain of losing all existing federal Medicaid monies rather than just new ones. And Roberts fashioned a remedy saying, look, there's an option. You can keep what you had before Obamacare, or you can get these additional monies, but that comes with a lot of new regulations. With respect to the Commerce Clause, it seems that the Roberts Court here said all the trains that have previously been passing through the hole in the Commerce Clause may continue to do so, but trains no larger may travel through this hole in the Commerce Clause. Well, that's really mixing the metaphor, but absolutely, I think that's right. You know, it's it's a win. Uh, you know, to say that this is a win is to also recognize how far we need to go to roll back uh, the federal government's power. And as Justice Thomas alone wrote in dissent, uh, we should really get back to the original understanding of commerce as trade in goods interstate. All right. For uh, Michael Tanner, where does this leave states? They sort of seem to expect that they were either going to have to sign on to a Medicaid expansion or lose all Medicaid funding. It seems to change the rules at least somewhat for states whether or not they actually have to go along with the Medicaid expansion and by virtue of that fact, spend a lot of new money. Well, that's right. It does open up the possibility that states could refuse to go along with the expansion of Medicaid. We know of about seven states that have said that they will not participate 
ranging from Florida to Wisconsin to Texas and South Carolina, have all said that they're not going to be part of this. And the reason is fairly simple. It's expensive. Even though the federal government would cover some of the cost of expanding Medicaid in the first few years, beginning around 2017, it starts to phase down that support, and ultimately state taxpayers would be on the hook for much of this money. We know it would cost states like Florida and Kansas as much as $20 billion, New York, $52, $53 billion, about $35 billion in New Jersey. This is all money that state taxpayers are going to have to pay. So it's not surprising that uh, given a choice of whether they want to uh, pay for all this money or have the federal government pay for it, states are saying, well, if you want to run a Medicaid program, you do it and you pay for it. Now, with respect specifically to states, we should mention what is known as the crowd-out effect. The idea that by extending a lot of additional government benefits that people who currently have private health insurance will drop it and get on the dole. Well, that's right. Uh, Particularly this expansion, which would primarily bring young, childless, single men into the Medicaid pool. This is, first of all, a very high-cost, high-risk group. People have a lot of... uh, drug addiction problems and health problems, but it's also a group that uh, theoretically could be working and earning enough to pay for insurance themselves, and you're basically providing them with an alternative to that. So it certainly is costly if the states want to go down that road. Ilya Shapiro, so with regard to the individual mandate being found to be constitutional as a tax, but not as a use of the federal government's Commerce Clause authority, As you and I have discussed before, Robert's writing on this subject seems to be mealy-mouthed and less than clear. And in any case, whatever we decide upon as what the coercive level of taxation might be, it's arbitrary. Right. Well, I think you this backs up the theory that many people have, especially in light of the leaks that have come out of the Supreme Court in recent weeks, that this was a political or at least a non-legal, non-constitutional decision on his part. He wanted to ultimately, you can't fault him for changing his mind, but you can fault him for changing his mind for the wrong reasons. And it seems like he ultimately wanted to uphold the individual mandate and uh, most of the rest of Obamacare without expanding the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause power that the government has. So in effect, although he in ringing terms endorses uh, Cato's and the plaintiff's ideas about the government not being able to regulate inactivity and you can regulate or prohibit existing activity but not uh, compel commerce in order to regulate it. Well, at the same time, apparently you can now tax inactivity in certain ways. And there's a lot of doctrinal problems with how he applied that. For one thing, we don't even know what kind of tax it is. It's a never-before-seen, you know, it's not a duty, it's not an impost. He goes out of his way to say it's not a direct tax. So the only other constitutional tax left is an excise. Excises are taxes on transactions and activities and enjoyments of privileges. And without being cute, I mean, I, I don't know whether this is a tax on the privilege of not buying health insurance or something, but it's really hard to square, as a lawyer, this sort of opinion. With respect specifically to the necessary and proper clause, does our understanding of that clause as a matter of constitutional law change at all with how this opinion was actually written? Yes. Although the Commerce Clause was not brought back to its originalist perspective, it's just brought back to where it was before Obamacare. The necessary and proper clause, there was a new interesting wrinkle added to the uh, relative dearth of precedent in that he said, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, that even if necessary, this particular regulation is not proper. That gets us back to Chief Justice Marshall's writing in the foundational case of McCullough versus Maryland way back in the 18-teens, how something, even if it's necessary to a particular national regulation, let alone to a regulation of interstate commerce, might still not be proper. And in this case, it's because requiring people to engage in economic mandates is not a proper means of regulating commerce. And it's worth remembering that just a few years ago, correct me if I'm wrong, We had a solicitor general arguing that the necessary and proper clause was effectively a freestanding source of authority for Congress to make whatever kinds of law it wanted. Absolutely. That might even have been uh, now Justice Elena Kagan saying that. Yes, it's very clear that uh, the necessary and proper clause gives only an incidental or derivative power, not a substantive or independent one. Michael Tanner, with respect to the law itself as it now stands... How do we move forward from here in terms of trying to adopt a healthcare policy that 
is rational and, you know, provides improving and increasing range of products to people that that want them. Well, I think there's three things we should remember. Number one is that just because the court has now upheld the law does not mean that anything else about the law has changed. All the bad things about the law that existed the day before the court ruling still exist. This still limits individual choice, is going to add enormously to the size of government. It's going to create $650 billion in new taxes over 10 years. It's going to add to the deficit. It's going to limit individual choice and put in place structures that down the road will ultimately lead to rationing. Second, This is not the last legal challenge to this bill. There are other challenges making their way through the courts right now, including a challenge to the Independent Payment Advisory Board, the unelected board of officials that will have the power to determine reimbursement rates under Medicare and Medicaid and possibly even under private insurance and can limit access to care. That's being challenged in the courts. And third, the political challenges aren't over. There will be challenges at the state level. There are holes in this legislation that, for example, if states choose not to set up an exchange, it could limit the availability of subsidies by cutting uh, much of the guts out of this bill. And states can also challenge the employer mandate, again, by not setting up uh, the state-based exchanges. Those The subsidies through those state-based exchanges is the trigger for the employer mandate states can thereby save their small businesses a small fortune. Now, that's $3,000 per employee that the IRS, as I understand it, cannot exact if states choose not to go along with it. Well, the law is very specific about saying that federal subsidies are only available on state-established exchanges and that the trigger for that fine, tax, whatever it is these days, for employers who don't provide health insurance to their workers is if one of their employees qualifies for a subsidy. No state exchange, no subsidy, therefore no tax. Now, the Obama administration has taken on itself with the IRS the right to unilaterally rewrite the law in order to say that they will grant these subsidies through federally-based exchanges despite what the law says. I think we can expect yet another court challenge on that case. There's another possibility here, again, with uh, IRS regulations that have yet to be written about how this will all be enforced. Part of what led John Roberts to sustain the individual mandate as a tax was that uh, there was no punitive or criminal sanctions attached to it. And that's correct. As written, the IRS cannot throw you in jail for not paying the uh, tax. However, Let's say you owe $1,000 in federal income tax and $1,000 on this Obamacare tax. Now, you pay 1000 bucks, and uh, the IRS considers that to be your Obamacare tax payment, and it still considers you to be in arrears $1,000 for federal income tax, which, of course, does carry a criminal sanction for not paying. On the other hand, if it writes the rules in such a way that what you say you're paying is what it will consider you to be paying, then if you're in arrears $1,000 for the Obamacare tax, it can't do anything. So in effect, you will have three choices of either buying health insurance, paying the tax, or not paying anything. Now, of course, that will only apply to people who don't get a tax refund because the IRS can and will claw back from your refund. But still, there's a a hefty percentage of taxpayers who uh, will certainly and even more will engineer it to be so that they don't get refunds. And uh, so uh, there's quite a legal pickle there and ripe for litigation either way. Now, I'll ask either of you on this particular issue on the Independent Payment Advisory Board. This within the law, if you actually dig in and read what this group is capable of doing and the degree to which Congress is constrained from, arguably, making changes to how this board operates. It's fairly draconian. Is that right? That's right. Despite assurances in the law where they have some boilerplate about how they can't do any rationing as a result of their decisions and Congress gets approval, the actual language gives this board a great deal of authority in determining basically what medical procedures will and will not be paid for by the federal government or by private insurance. So it has enormous authority. And it's a tremendous delegation of authority. It, I mean, is basically the legislative branch of government telling the executive branch, we can't do the job. You're going to have to write laws all by yourself and, and put them in place and enforce them. They get to be judge, jury, and executioner. And that clearly is a, is a constitutional problem. Yeah, it's a separation of powers issue. It's a delegation of authority problem, you know, creating this you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, however many branches of government we're up to at this point. 
uh, and it lies there independently. And as you alluded, Caleb, indeed, there's a provision that says that there's only a uh, several-month window in 2017 for it to be ever repealed by Congress. Otherwise, it can never be touched, which is bizarre. No Congress can bind a future Congress. You know, only constitutional amendments can do that. So all of these issues are being raised in the central challenge to IPAB that's uh, being brought by our friends at the Goldwater Institute out in Arizona. Now, uh, when I spoke with uh, Randy Barnett on this issue, one of the chief architects of many of the arguments that uh, were presented before the high court opposing the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, he said, well, look, pretend you're the next litigator who has to litigate cases dealing with this issue. Your position has been improved. What do you think of that? It depends what you're litigating exactly. I mean, if your central concern is the Commerce Clause and there's a mandate, economic mandate involved, obviously you're in good hands. If uh, there's a tax, like let's say there's some nightmare scenarios have been painted about a, a Prius tax. You know, if you buy a Prius or pay a $50,000 fine or whatever the market value is these days, now there's not really a market for Priuses, I guess, but the government can't do that under Roberts' standard. It could assess a $500 or $1,000 fine or what have you, but you can't actually have a tax with any teeth in the sense of compelling people to do something. And similarly under the spending clause. I mean, this is revolutionary. For the first time since the New Deal under modern jurisprudence, an act of Congress has been held unconstitutional under the spending clause. And seven justices signed up for that. That wasn't just the conservative plus Roberts. So uh, there's a lot of good stuff for, for future challenges, whether related to health care or otherwise. I think one of the unique things about the uh, the Roberts decision was I think there was the case of the individual mandate, I think the justices, particularly Justice Roberts, felt was not severable. And that striking it down would have struck down the entire law. That wouldn't apply to challenges like IPAB or some of the challenges to the employer mandate, whatever. The, the law might well stand without it. They wouldn't have to throw out everything. And therefore, I think you've got a better chance. Of right. Those. To the extent that Roberts's concern, why he switched his vote, was because he didn't want to strike down the entire law. And he saw no way around that if the individual mandate fell. These sorts of larger, as Michael said, severability concerns don't apply. And so you could knock out these other provisions one by one without endangering uh, the whole rest of it and therefore potentially not putting in these sort of atmospheric political considerations into play. Okay. We're going to leave it there. Ilya Shapiro, senior fellow at the Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, working furiously to put out the next edition of the Cato Institute's Supreme Court Review, the most authoritative and yet somehow most quickly produced document following a Supreme Court session. We chained the interns in the dungeon, and the, new, uh, the new dungeon in the new Cato building. <laughs> and Michael Tanner, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, dealing with uh, the healthcare issues as a policy matter. If you want to learn more about the quizzical, curious Roberts decision on the Affordable Care Act known as Obamacare, you can check out our website, cato.org. What you learned about liberty and how we should treat each other, you probably learned in kindergarten. That from Tom Palmer, senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He spoke at Cato's new Hayek Auditorium at an event for students in June. So most people govern their lives every day by libertarian principles. These are the principles that parents teach their children. Decent parents, that's 99 point something percent of all the parents out there, teach their little children very difficult lessons. Don't hit other people. That's what parents teach their kids. Don't take their stuff. Don't lie. Keep your promises. Those are pretty good principles to govern your lives. They are fundamentally libertarian principles. They reflect respect for other people. And yet, we can ask, who makes up governments? So is it made up of gods, or angels, or maybe even demons? Or just maybe, government is made up of people, and they're just like us. And if there are moral principles that govern our lives, and how we interact with other people. And those are principles to govern the lives of human beings. Maybe they should apply to the people in power as well. Maybe government should also be governed by some rules. It's not made up of gods or demons or angels. It's made up of people just like you. Why should there be any different principle for them as opposed to all the rest of us? So what I'm going to offer now is just a very, very quick tour of some libertarian ideas. 
as a case of applying morality and social science to politics, government, and society. I can't answer every problem. I can't solve every issue. I don't expect people to walk away saying, I understand libertarianism top to bottom right now. But this is just an attempt to introduce you to some basic themes. Let's go back to that fundamental moral principle, a very radical notion, one that in many ways is characteristic of the modern world and unusual in the ancient world. Now, some of you will be shocked by this idea, but I'll put it up in its darkest form. Other people don't belong to you. No one belongs to me. They may err. I may believe that they're making bad choices. But fundamentally, those are their choices to make. Obviously, children are in a lesser condition to make such choices, which is why we have guardians that make choices for children until they grow into the capacity to make their own choices. But after that point, when they reach the age of consent, the age of majority, they get to make their own choices. And obviously there are some people of diminished capacity even once they've reached that age. They may suffer from mental impairment or have other problems that diminish their capacities. And we have guardianship models for them as well. Some adults who uh, suffer from a lack of intellectual development and they need someone to help them with choices. But those are the marginal cases, the difficult ones. We do have principles to govern them. But for all the rest, for the overwhelming majority, adults are responsible for their own lives and they should have the freedom to make those choices for them. Now, what makes you a libertarian? Well, the primacy of liberty as a political goal, but let's be a little careful about that. It doesn't mean liberty is the only goal in life. There are lots of important goals in human life. Love, family, professional accomplishment, achievement, all the different spheres of human activity. But as a political goal, liberty is primary. But not absolute in the sense that some people would like it to be. There's a presumption of liberty. That is to say, a fundamental libertarian principle. It is presumed that people should have the liberty to do what they want with what is theirs, unless there's a good reason to stop them. This year, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, which requires gender equity in all federally funded education programs, turns 40 years old. But is the law a major success, as its supporters claim? Neil McCluskey, Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom and author of Feds in the Classroom, parsed the law at the Cato Institute in June. The first question that should be asked is whether in 1972 there was good evidence that Title IX was needed. Was there clear evidence of broad gender discrimination in federally funded education activities? And clearly there were disparities, and I think we've been over many of them. I'll just hit some very quickly. In 1972, women made up only 43% of college students, 7% uh, of high school athletes, and 15% of college athletes, clearly underrepresented. On college faculties, women constituted less than 10% of full professors in psychology, life sciences, social sciences, and many other areas. But the question that we need to ask is, why was there this underrepresentation? Was it mainly a function of outright discrimination, of abilities, or of culture? And maybe, no doubt, all of those were at play. But I think culture is likely a big part of this. Most likely, people were self-selecting into different professions, into different educational options, in part based on or correlated with gender, but not because it was the only thing their gender legally allowed them to do. And there is evidence supporting this and belying the need for Title IX, and that is that college enrollment for women started taking off well before we had Title IX. Between 1947 and 1972, women's share of total enrollment in college was growing at a pace of 0.56 percentage points per year, rising from 29% in 1947 to 43.1 in 1972. In contrast, from 1972 and 2010, 
Growth was only 0.37 percentage points per year, hitting 57% in 2010. Now, of course, you know, there's the problem of as you get bigger and bigger percentages, that growth is going to slow down. But the growth prior to 1972 really shows that something was happening long before there was this law, and most likely culture was changing. Of course, in 1972, there probably were blatant examples of outright gender discrimination. But I think that self-selection into what is called gendered roles was likely the more prevalent problem. So, of course, our main focus is the need and function of Title IX today. So today is there evidence of significant intentional discrimination. Again, we have disparities. Nobody's disagreeing with that, I don't think. So women still, for instance, make up then less than half of the full professoriate in many fields, and then some, like engineering, are but a tiny fraction. Women also are still not represented in college sports, even though there was big growth, but they're not represented in college sports relative to their share of total enrollment, constituting, again, 57% of total college enrollment, but only 43% of athletes. Again, those are raw numbers, and raw numbers are not sufficient to prove discrimination. There is almost certainly, again, major self-selection into these areas. Indeed, as you read through a lot of the reports that have come out to coincide with the anniversary of Title IX, you find that most of these groups who are advocates will even say they will not argue that there's a great deal of outright discrimination, but instead unconscious sexism rooted in cultural assumptions. But unfortunately, much of this essentially you're guilty and don't even know it argument is based in at best unproven psychology. Most important, the idea of stereotype threat, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, and something called implicit association testing. So stereotype threat posits essentially that women, particularly it's used to see about mathematics performance. And they'll say that women do, don't do as well in some mathematics tests because essentially they get nervous taking them and hence do poorly. And the reason they're nervous is there's an assumption that women do less well and you get nervous because you really want to prove that wrong. But the nervousness causes you not to do as well. But this has not really been borne out in the experiments that are used to try and prove it. So basically, what happens are you give a test, usually with men and women, and the first iteration, one group gets a test that starts with a statement that says, women don't do as well on this test as men do. Then you give the test to another group and you give a statement that says, there is no, essentially there's no gender bias on this test. And what's found is that the women who get the loaded statement don't do as well as the men, and they don't do as well as the women in the other group. But the women in the other group who say there is no gender bias, they do very well and they do just as well as the men do. But what that actually suggests is that stereotype threat is not a real-world problem, unless most tests are prefaced with a gender-biasing statement. <laughs> now, there are numerous other problems with the stereotype threat theory. I'm not going to get into all of them. One of them is that the studies that are typically cited there's been a lot of trouble replicating them. But regardless, the main problem is that it has, appears to have little connection to reality. The same holds true for implicit association testing. Now, you, you might have taken an IAT test. You can do it online. When you go home, give it a try. It's a fun activity for the whole family. And if you've done that, you know what kind of a strange test it is. You're basically asked to associate words on a computer screen as fast as possible. And the categories will shift throughout the test in different iterations. And then if you wrongly associate terms when female is under science, and then they throw up terms you're supposed to put either with science and female or male and liberal arts, then you're essentially identified as having some sort of implicit sexist bias. You basically rack up a lot of wrong answers. Of course, from, aside from the dubious nature of the test itself, I mean, all the switching that's involved, basically it confuses you and it can be very loaded where you put different things at different times. But even if that is accurately assessing unconscious biases, even if our unconscious selves are a bit sexist, Rarely does this translate into how we would do hiring or promotion. Nobody that I know of makes a hiring or promotion decision within a millisecond of being confronted with something. That would make no sense. And of course, in many cases, people have a great self-interest in hiring or promoting the right person because that reflects well on them. So the result of this is that Title IX tends to be based on an assumption of guilt. 
and hence has a huge overemphasis on regulatory compliance. You know, do you have all the right gender equity officers? Do they do enough reviews? Are obnoxious frat boys swiftly punished? So it does that rather than focusing on dealing with the situation or situations in which discrimination is real and proven. Indeed, proof actually rarely happens. According to a pro-Title IX National Academy of Science report, quote, in most sex discrimination cases that reach trial, universities win. Of course, now most don't reach a trial. But part of that is because the accusation that comes from the Office of Civil Rights is itself the punishment. That's the bad PR for the school. The school is immediately on the defensive. And it's expensive, if you're the school, to fight the federal government through courts. So what we often see is what Yale University just did was announced a few days ago. They were accused of having a hostile atmosphere toward women. And what they did is they didn't acknowledge any guilt. They agreed to more bureaucratic compliance without acknowledging, without admitting any guilt, and without any finding of guilt. They said, let's get this over with. We'll promise to do more reviews and things like that. It's essentially Title IX is a club that the federal government can wield really for browbeating purposes and for PR purposes. That's often how it's used. How has government impacted the American dream of home ownership? According to Cato Institute senior fellow Randall O'Toole, it's turned that dream into a nightmare. O'Toole discussed his findings and his new book, American Nightmare, at the Cato Institute in June. Many people are surprised to learn that in the late 19th century urban America, homeownership rates among the working class were much higher than among the middle class. And so homeownership rates in this neighborhood, working class Chicago, might have been as high as 30 or 35 percent, whereas in this middle-class neighborhood of Chicago, they were probably under 10 percent. So again, it's not an income-related thing. It's related to something else much different. By 1969, across the country, home ownership rates had settled down to be about the same in most places, around 60 to 65 percent. And the price of a home, the median price of a home in cities across the country was almost everywhere about twice the median family income. So whatever the income was, it was twice as much, which meant that in Los Angeles or San Francisco, which had higher incomes than Charlotte and Houston, housing was more expensive, but it was probably bigger homes, more luxurious homes. Generally, though, the two-to-one ratio of home prices to incomes held across the country. By 2006, this was no longer true. In many parts of the country, home prices were four, five, six, seven, in a few places even 10 times median family incomes. Housing had become unaffordable. When housing is twice median family income, you can spend 25% of your income on a mortgage and pay it off in, in 10 years. When it's three times uh, median family income, it takes 20 years to pay it off. When it's four or five times median family income, you can't pay it off in a 30-year mortgage. When it's six times median family income, you're talking about infinite amounts of time before you're able to pay off that mortgage. So we've got very unaffordable housing. And what's the difference between cities like Los Angeles, Miami, and Portland, which have unaffordable housing, and cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, and Houston? The difference basically is government. Government got in the way of housing in the expensive cities, and they made housing expensive. Where government didn't get in the way of housing, housing remained affordable. Let me talk to you briefly about my former hometown of Portland. In the early 1990s, planners in Portland made a decision that they imposed on the entire region. That decision was that currently 65% of households in the Portland area lived in single-family homes. They wanted to reduce this almost to 40%. They wanted to increase multifamily housing to more than 60% of the region, well, almost to 60% of the region. And to do that, they had an urban growth boundary around the city of Portland. They made that boundary fairly strict. They made a few token additions to the boundary, but they put so many regulations on those additions that nobody has yet put in any developments. They rezoned dozens of neighborhoods for multifamily housing. Single-family homes are rezoned for multifamily, and the zoning is so strict that if your house burnt down, you weren't allowed to rebuild it. You had to replace it with apartments or whatever met the minimum density of the zone. And then that wasn't enough, so they started subsidizing multifamily housing. And since then, 
Portland and its suburbs have sunk about $2 billion in subsidies to developers of multifamily housing. Now, if you're in a place that doesn't have a lot of land use regulation, you have an, what economists call an elastic supply of housing. That means the supply curve is essentially flat. No matter what happens to demand, the supply will be able to meet it and the price doesn't change. When you start restricting housing, you make that supply curve steeper. Economists call it inelastic. That means a small change in demand leads to a large change in price. And it works in both directions. A small increase in demand leads to a large increase in price. A small decrease in demand leads to a large decrease in price. And so, so we started seeing housing bubbles in cities that had this kind of planning. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Tampa, large housing bubbles. And these weren't the first ones. California started doing this kind of planning back in the 70s. And this was actually the third housing bubble that California had gone through. We compare that with cities that do not have a lot of planning, and we have virtually no housing bubbles. Housing prices did not significantly increase during the boom years of the 2000s, and they have not significantly decreased since the crash. Now, planners made housing less affordable, and in order to compensate, they decided to pass, in many places, what are called inclusionary zoning ordinances, or affordable housing mandates, requiring developers to provide some of their housing at less than market and often less than cost. And that actually made housing less affordable because, first of all, developers stopped building as many homes when they were required to do this. Second of all, they increased the price on the market rate homes that they were allowed to sell. And thirdly, other home owners who were thinking of selling their homes realized that the market price of housing had gone up, so they increased the price of their second homes or their used homes as well. Now, my example of the free market at work is Houston. In Houston, they have no zoning. Counties in Texas are not even allowed to zone. So basically, you can do whatever you want. You can buy land, you can get a permit, you can build on that land, and you can move in within 120 days of when you closed on the land. And housing is very affordable. Here's a house that you can buy for $150,000. It's brand new, three-bedroom, two-bath house. You can buy brand new homes in Houston, three-bedroom, two-bath homes for as low as $110,000. Here's a house, it's two bedrooms, two baths. It's a used house, obviously. It's for sale for $59,000 right now. And it's typical of houses that you can buy in the Houston area. Housing is very affordable, despite the fact that Houston is the fastest growing urban area in the United States. So Henry David Thoreau once said, the government is excellent, but it never accomplished anything except by the alacrity with which it got out of the way. If we want affordable housing, government needs to get out of the way and let people have the kind of housing they want. U.S. intervention in Libya broke several rules that had previously governed U.S. interventions, and not for the better. One year later, Libya remains in crisis. Reports suggest that operatives linked to al-Qaeda are active in Libya. Militias are detaining thousands of former regime loyalists and engaging in widespread torture. Dirk Vanderwall, associate professor of government at Dartmouth College, discussed Libya at the Cato Institute in June. I was asked to make some quick evaluation of what has happened in Libya since that time. And the way I, I tend to think of the kind of challenges that Libya has faced essentially in two categories, uh, what I would call the categories uh, related to state building, where this new country, in a sense, had to create all the kind of necessary institutions to make uh, the country governable. And on the other hand, also had to create, in a nation-building sense, the kind of consensus that is needed to govern once you are able, even incompletely, to establish some of those institutions um, of a modern state. And as you all know, particularly after 42 years of the Gaddafi regime, the prerequisites for successful state building were not terribly high in Libya. This was a country where for all practical purposes, if you think back to Gaddafi's notion of, of the Jamahiriya, the notion of statelessness, all institutions of a modern state had more or less been eviscerated and done away with. And so the challenge, and in a sense, Libya started from a tabula rasa, and had to create, uh, almost out of nothing, all these institutions that the country truly had never really had. And so what we saw was that uh, the country, of course, started off with an enormous amount um, of chaos. 
And that continues uh, to some extent today, although I would argue that it has diminished uh, somewhat. And certainly, initially, during the months leading up to the removal of Gaddafi, the expectation had been uh, from the stabilization team that was working outside of Libya, but also by some of the groups within Libya, that this would turn out to be a reasonably orderly um, transition. Of course, in the end, it, it turned out that it was not orderly at all, in part because the capture of Tripoli was then done by the Western rebels and not by the Eastern rebels that had fought most of the war, of the civil war, against the regime. And so when it happened, in a sense, we saw a few weeks before that the kind of the emergence of the first what I would call fault lines within um, Libya, perhaps uh, best exemplified by uh, the difficulties that arose around the killing of Abdel Fattah Yunus, uh, the former military commander of the eastern part of the country, uh, in its wake of which uh, we saw a number of kind of tipping points emerge, particularly with uh, for the future of the eastern part of the country. Well, in a sense, the fact um, that the emergence of this new Libya was a lot more chaotic than, anybody, than I think at least some of the Libyans expected made uh, a number of compromises necessary. You may remember that the Transitional National Council, the council that is, or at least was, in charge um, of this state-building effort, and that this Transitional National Council, in a sense, had at the point of itself, was not really seen and is not really seen yet in, in Libya as a truly legitimate uh, enterprise. And as a result of that, had to make willy-nilly all kinds of compromises, including the appointment, uh, for example, of two of the most important militia leaders um, to the two most important ministries in the eventual government. Uh, at the same time, um, as I think you're probably all aware, there were lots of difficulties um, arising after the unification of the, or the end of the Civil War, I should say, um, including the whole federalist issue that has reappeared, and perhaps the, uh, the federalist issue has been overstated a little bit. It has more to do with autonomy, actually, than with federalism. But certainly another set of uh, difficulties um, has been the fact that if you think back to the Gaddafi regime, one of the ways that that regime was capable of staying in power for 42 years had been a very careful but deliberate use of a kind of divide and rule policy and that had very strategically used the country's financial resources to keep different groups, different individuals in line. And one of the difficulties, of course, and one of the, as I point out, one of the remaining difficulties in Libya is the fact that these issues around the use of patronage, the issues uh, in terms of transparency around the use um, of the country's revenues has still not uh, been settled um, adequately, at least not the way um, I would uh, think of it. How well has Libya done, let's say, 16, 17 months after the civil war um, started in the country? First of all, I think it's very hard to ignore by anybody who even casually reads the newspapers that there remains an enormous amount of chaos in the country almost on an everyday basis. You hear incidents of some of the militias taking law into their own hands. A couple of my colleagues will undoubtedly point out there are still enormous um, human rights uh, violations, uh, lots of torture still taking place. And perhaps the most uh, or if, if there's one example that kind of stood out um, as the inability of the government yet to control some militias, it was the takeover of the 4th of June a few weeks ago um, of the airport uh, in Tripoli. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you may also remember that that incident was settled within hours, that it was settled uh, by uh, forces of the Interior Ministry, and that in a sense uh, there was some traction there to those forces of the Interior Ministry that was also starting to take place. So the second problem, I think, um, remains uh, 16, 17 months um, after this conflict started, that uh, the Transitional National Council, and undoubtedly the government that will be elected eventually, that the capacity of that government um, still is largely overwhelmed by the kind of challenges and the number of challenges that it faces. And this is undoubtedly something that will continue, not only the military aspect of it, the monopoly of violence, but many, many technical questions in terms of state building um, that the authorities simply are not capable um, of addressing yet. On the other hand, um, of course, we do have uh, the prospect of elections, not just the prospect, the actual elections will take place on the 7th um, of July. Um, and kind of indicative, I think, of how Libyans um, have taken an interest in their own country and the number of people that have actually registered for these elections is 80% of the electorate. 
Um, so a very positive development, uh, undoubtedly helped uh, by the expert help um, of UNSMIL, the United Nations Special Mission in Libya over the last uh, few months. What is also surprising, and indeed I think augurs relatively well for the country, is that the original roadmap that was uh, written out by what became the TNC during the civil war is still largely in place, and that is a roadmap that sees the elections then followed by the eventual writing um, of a constitution and that will spell out the rules of the game, so to speak, for Libya to come. Just a year ago, the world lost John Hospers, a philosopher, the first libertarian presidential candidate in 1972, and longtime friend of Ayn Rand. In this 1996 clip from Cato's new website, libertarianism.org, Hospers discussed his friendship with Ayn Rand in an event held by the International Society of Individual Liberty. It was about at that time that she was starting to have a weekly broadcast on the Columbia University radio station. I think it lasted for about a year and uh, wanted some opening music. So I brought along a whole bunch of, of, of records, I saw good introductory music. So I had some of Handel overtures, bits of Bach, Purcell's trumpet voluntary, things that I thought would just be ideal to introduce a program. She didn't want any of those. But she said, all these, this is the 17th and 18th century, that's a static universe. Well, if you want a dynamic universe, how about Beethoven? How about Wagner? Well, she didn't want those either. We ended up with what was her favorite, Rachmaninoff. Her two favorite composers were Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. I didn't consider it accidental that they were both Russian. <laughs> she thought that all aesthetic judgments were objective. She said, I can't prove it in the case of music. She said, I don't know what to say about those. But she said, all these are objective qualities that I discern. And then I said, look, I think that a lot of the terms that we use to praise or dispraise works of art Terms like beautiful, terms like appealing, terms like expressive, they have more to do with our reactions to the work than they do with the nature of the work itself. I said, now granted, many of them may be a mix, but I said, we have to disentangle these because we want to keep apart the terms that describe something and terms that describe qualities of something and those that describe our reactions to it. There was some degree of disagreement there. It's very difficult to encapsulate in just a few minutes what, was actually, what took place over a long time and then was forgotten again and then resumed at a later time. We did a great deal of this, but it is through aesthetic concepts that I got an idea of what objectivism means. All aesthetic qualities are objective. They're out there. They're really in the object, you see. And I expressed some doubts about that. Not that I was a subjectivist. I wasn't. But I said that many so-called qualities, including the secondary qualities, as they're called, like color, shape, smell of objects, those also may be relative to the state of the observer and dependent on the observer's organism and so on. I always try to think of exceptions to whatever, whatever general principle is enunciated. Sometimes irritated her, but sometimes she enjoyed it as well. And so we had spent some time on secondary qualities and then the so-called tertiary qualities like beauty and goodness and so on. But in general, her position is these, they're all really out there. Could we but, could we but know it? It's, the difficulty is in our appreciation. And I didn't necessarily agree with that, but we would go from one subject to another in a friendly way. She, I think her ideal art was always heroic and like Atlas. And I think I was much more tolerant of a lot of things in art that she was intolerant of. I liked Picasso, she didn't. I liked James Joyce. She had no patience with James Joyce at all. And there were occasional arguments about this, friendly arguments. 
I would sometimes take her to concerts and ballet, modern dance. She didn't always like it, but we had a great time there. And there just isn't time to discuss everything that I could say about those wonderful evenings that we spent in restaurants, concert halls, and so on. Then we'd go to her place and talk until usually till four o'clock in the morning and very often we're still talking at eight in the morning and she'd make me breakfast and I'd go off to class. <laughs> and that happened many times over a period of several years. It's difficult to give a brief impression of these. I think I was somewhat more pessimistic in my view of the universe than she was. I mentioned once, for instance, the status of animals. I said, which animal would want to come into this world knowing that they'd only be prey for other animals, none of them living to old age, all of them, say, dying from hunger, disease, and so on and so on. She didn't exactly deny that, but she thought I was emphasizing the wrong thing. And in fact, although I was pessimistic about that, I told her, look, I, I'm just trying to take a realistic view of things. I'm, I'm not personally depressed. I feel life is wonderful, but I'm just trying to see the universe as it is. And uh, curiously, when I expressed some reservations about the profession I was in of teaching and that I would have a class and I'd try to clarify their concepts and I'd work hard uh, on the students and then the term or the year would be over and just as they were starting to get somewhere then you'd have a whole bunch of uh, new ones the next term and then the full of the same mistakes as the previous ones and then it would all start over again and I said this is becoming monotonously repetitive she said no she said you are in the most influential profession in the world you may not know it but you are it's ideas it's ideas not physical things that mold the world and she said, it's when bad ideas replace good ones, that's when we have the kind of world that we have now. I never forgot that. It sort of gave me renewed inspiration to go ahead with my profession. And I never since then reached the, the doldrums in my feeling about the profession that I did at the time, that I had, was in at the time that I met her. Well, we disagreed a lot about contemporary philosophy. She hadn't read a lot in contemporary philosophy, especially Anglo-American. And it was difficult to convey a brief impression of that because so much of this involves multiple meanings of words and, and things that she didn't really have much patience with. And I thought that this was the important and essential avenue for getting to that. She thought, apparently, that most modern philosophers, by modern, she meant 20th century, that most modern philosophers were skeptics about the existence of a physical world. And I said, well, they take the physical world to be a hypothesis which is highly confirmed, if not totally validated. I said, but none of them deny it. She thought that it would be unusual to find a philosopher who took the existence of the physical world as axiomatic and did not require any argumentation. And I showed her a long article of one of my favorite contemporary philosophers, Norman Malcolm of Cornell. I still remember the article, and I, I typed up the argument of the article for her called Knowledge and Verification. And the conclusion was that knowledge of certain things about the physical world around us is not just probable, but certain. And she said, let's get him over here and talk with him, because he, this would be the exception in contemporary philosophy. I said, no, that, that's not the exception. They, Modern philosophers are, are not what you apparently think they are. They may, they may put on a skeptical guise, and they may say a lot of things that are skeptical about perception, skeptical about science, skeptical about religion. You can be skeptical about all sorts of things. But she was always suspicious of that. Thought that I was presenting contemporary philosophy in all too rosy hue in order to promote it to her. And to the end, she had very little patience with it. I might have come through to her on a few things, but our backgrounds were too were dissimilar. I didn't really fully understand what hers was until I read Chris Yabara's book on Ayn Rand, which came out last year about her education in Petersburg and so on. That's a long, long story, which I can't go into here. But we had lots of friendly disagreements, 
Some of them not so friendly. I always tried to be easygoing, friendly, but I, I could see the signs of impatience and sometimes anger rising. I'm, there's always a reason for the anger. For instance, I remember that one night I quoted her quite casually Anatole France's statement, the rich have the same right as the poor to sleep under bridges. And that really set her off. It just, she was apoplectic with anger. And I didn't understand that at the time. I subsequently saw that she saw so much in that to refute it, to talk about property rights and how if there were sufficient attention to property rights, the things that were described in this about the poor sleeping under bridges would not occur. I mean, that was a long, long story, and I wasn't yet all that into free enterprise economics and so on, but we went into that all quite a bit later. When she had these bouts of anger, I could always detect that there was something very profound behind it, and I didn't always realize what that was. So I tried to keep an even keel and just tried to learn from her, and I did learn a great deal from her, even as I tried to teach her some things about contemporary philosophy that she really didn't know, or some things where I thought it was misrepresented to her, and I tried to give it a fair appraisal. There are lots of, and I don't have time to go into those, I'll go into one or two very briefly. We discussed, for example, causality. And I casually threw out the suggestion to her uh, once upon a time, if A occurs and then B occurs and then that happens again, A, B, A, B, A, B, then we have some title to say that A caused B. And she immediately recognized this as Hume's constant conjunction theory of causality and she didn't like that at all. Of course, I was about to augment this theory. I wasn't satisfied with Hume just as it was stated. But I said, uh, you know, look, if you're in a theater and you're hearing the clattering of horses' hooves on the film and just at that moment an earthquake shakes the theater, you get the impression that the earthquake is what caused the clattering of horses' hooves. I said, but and if, if it turned out at every time you saw that film there was an earthquake in the theater, then you would suspect that there was some causal relation between the two. And that was an example of what was ordinarily called the regularity view of causation. But I said, of course, be careful. A person can say, I get up an hour before sunrise every morning and bow to the east, and lo and behold, every morning the sun rises. But lest I think that my, my action caused the sun to rise, so one morning I won't get up, and then I'll see what happens. And then you'll know what does and does not help cause the sunrise. So I went into this in quite a good deal of detail and she said, yes, but that's not enough. In causation, the cause acts upon the effect. And I said, okay, okay, but now let's see what this phrase act on means. What about situations like, uh, I said, in traditional situation, the, this domino is near that domino and the first hits the second, the second hits the third and so on until the tenth one comes down. This is causation by contact. This is the most familiar one, the familiar to us in everyday life. The one acts upon the other in a clear sense. Now what about this situation? The sun is over here, another star is many light years away, but there is a considerable gravitational attraction from the one to the other. What acts on what? Well, the sun acts on the other star. Yes, but there's, it certainly is not in the traditional way, because there's nothing between them. I said, well, in the 19th century ether hypothesis, there is something permeating all space that is between them. But I said, that theory went out at the end of the 19th century and it has never been revived. But I said, would you say that that is, would you say nevertheless that that's acting on? Huh? Seems to say, yes, that was acting on, even though it action at a distance. Yeah, yeah. The, that seems to be okay so far. Then we got into discussion of ESP. I didn't know that that was such an explosive issue with her. I just wandered into it, you know, unknowing. And I was presenting some data that I had read about the so-called Shackleton experiment in Great Britain about a person in one room guessing what cards were being pulled simultaneously when a bell rang in another room, soundproof three rooms away and so on. A bunch of scientists there to make sure there was no dirty work going on, and no cheating of any kind. 
And here's one person who almost always gets it right. I mean, here's this bunch of cards, spades, clubs, and so on. And suppose that when clubs is, is being drawn over here, the guy over three rooms away always guesses correctly what it is. I said, no, that's... Uh, if you define ESP as one mind having access to another mind without the intermediary of the sense organs in, in between, this seems to be a pretty good case of ESP. And, uh, uh, no, no. She thought it was shameful that I even read that stuff. That's not the way nature works. You're misconceiving the nature of the world. I said, well, but you can't just say a priori what nature is like. You can't just figure it out as you do in mathematics. Sometimes you have to look and see. And if the evidence favors ESP, and I, I don't care whether it does or not, but if it does, well then we have to accept it, even though we can't explain it. This seemed to me just eminently commonsensical. She never got over this. She thought this was not the way nature works, and I should have known better to begin with, and any attempt to show that ESP might actually exist is fraudulent. I mean, I should be onto the fraud before I even started with the business. I said, well, you know, I can't really know these things a priori. Some things we have to look and observe and see. And things like this became a regular bill of fare between us. We talked about the causal principle that everything that happens has some cause or other. She thought that it was true. Yeah, and in general, I did too. But I said, what is the status of this statement? Is it a statement at all? Since, I said, it's epistemologically very suspect, don't you think, Ein? Because every time we find a cause for something, we say, yeah, the causal principle's been further confirmed. But when we don't find it, we said we don't say it was disconfirmed, we say we haven't found it yet. And when I see those one-sided businesses, I, I get suspicious. So that is what led some people to say the causal principle is not a statement about the world at all. It is a kind of rule of the game, the rule of the scientific game. We adopt it as a rule. It helps us to find more causes. It encourages us and so on. has certain pragmatic effects. But maybe it's neither true nor false. Well, and, and I've mentioned a lot of things that look as if they're statements, factual reports about the universe, and maybe, I said, maybe, just maybe, they're not reports of the universe, what the universe gives us, it's what we import and bring to the universe. And we see it through some of our own expectations and desires. Well, that smacked a little bit of Kant, although I didn't put it in those terms. And uh, again, that was, that was totally rejected. There were a whole bunch of issues like that. I mean, we discussed definitions. We discussed hosts of philosophical issues and just some scientific ones, too. In general, she didn't have a lot of sympathies with certain developments in contemporary science. She totally rejected, say, the Heisenberg principle of indeterminacy and so on. And uh, Einstein's statement, God did not play dice with the universe. But when I suggested, well, you know, maybe the indeterminacy is right out there in nature. It's not just that there is a definite situation and we don't know what it is, but it's that indeterminacy is really out there. She was ashamed of me that I should think such a thing, that my head wasn't really on quite straight. So it continued. I'm only giving a very, very brief impression, and I'm almost through. We discussed theory of definition many, many times. I don't have a chance to do all that right now. I just wanted to give a brief hint of the sort of thing that we sometimes talked about. She was, sometimes she'd get very angry that something that she thought I was confused about or something that I had said, and then she'd go into the kitchen and prepare tea and I'd hear the clattering of cups and she came back and she'd come back and say, this was a philosophical anger. It's not a personal anger. It's not directed against you. And sometimes when I said something that she very much approved of or liked, she'd say, I love you in the true philosophical sense of that term. Oh, I didn't know exactly what that was, but I wasn't going to ask any... And so I'd say, well, that, that's true of me in spades. Fine. Well, 30 years have elapsed. And 
I still miss her tremendously. I think of her on all kinds of occasions. Barbara and I were discussing this the other day. She was saying that when the Berlin Wall came down, she was thinking of Ein, and I was too. And the same now today that her books are available in Russian in her own native, native Leningrad. It's unfair that she didn't live to see that. That would have been tremendous. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down historic decisions this term on a variety of issues, including the Affordable Care Act and immigration reform. Join us on September 18th for an in-depth analysis of these decisions at the Cato Institute's 11th Annual Constitution Day, with a keynote address by the Honorable Paul Clement, former Solicitor General of the United States. For a full schedule and to register for this event, please visit cato.org slash Constitution Day. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.